there have been many things in the news. There was the um, Pennsylvania clergy sex abuse bomb that went off this week. A grand jury report detailing the abuse of more than a thousand children by more than 300 priests over the years. And there are probably vastly more. That sort of thing is underreported, as we all know, and also sedulously covered up by the church. In fact, it's not much of an exaggeration to say that the Catholic Church is a machine, one of whose primary functions has been to ensure that children get raped and that the world doesn't find out about it. This really is not an exaggeration. That reminded me of an article I wrote about 10 years ago when a similar scandal happened in Ireland. I wrote an article titled Bringing the Vatican to Justice. Actually, I may have read this on a much earlier podcast, but I'll just read the first two paragraphs here because it's really all I have to say in the present case. And um, it makes a point that I think is all too rarely made. So here's what I wrote, I think, in 2009 or so. I've paid too little attention to the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. Frankly, it has always felt unsportsmanlike to shoot so large and languorous a fish in so tiny a barrel, and there seemed to be no need to deride faith at its most vulnerable and self-abased. Even in retrospect, it is easy to understand the impulse to avert one's eyes. Just imagine a pious mother and father sending their beloved child to the church of a thousand hands for spiritual instruction, only to have him raped and terrified into silence by threats of hell. Then imagine this occurring to tens of thousands of children in our own time, and to children beyond reckoning for over a thousand years. The spectacle of faith so utterly misplaced and so fully betrayed is simply too depressing to think about. But there was always more to this phenomenon that should have compelled my attention. Consider the ludicrous ideology that made it possible. The Catholic Church has spent two millennia demonizing human sexuality to a degree unmatched by any other institution, declaring the most basic, healthy, mature, and consensual behavior is taboo. Indeed, this organization still opposes the use of contraception, preferring instead that the poorest people on earth be blessed with the largest families and the shortest lives. As a consequence of this hallowed and incorrigible stupidity, the Church has condemned generations of decent people to shame and hypocrisy, or to Neolithic fecundity, poverty, and death by AIDS. Add to this inhumanity the artifice of cloistered celibacy, and you now have an institution, one of the wealthiest on earth, that preferentially attracts pederasts, pedophiles, and sexual sadists into its ranks, promotes them to positions of authority, and grants them privileged access to children. Finally, consider that vast numbers of children will be born out of wedlock and their unwed mothers vilified wherever church teaching holds sway, leading boys and girls by the thousands to be abandoned to church-run orphanages only to be raped and terrorized by the clergy. Here in this ghoulish machinery set whirling through the ages by the opposing winds of shame and sadism, we mortals can finally glimpse how strangely perfect are the ways of the Lord. Okay, so that's how I open that article. But let's be clear about what's happening here. This isn't just the law of large numbers, where you sample hundreds of thousands or millions of people and you find some thousands of them abusing children. There's something special about the Catholic Church. Okay, there's a specific machinery here based on dogmatism and faith in ridiculous ideas. 
And every detail matters, like the belief in hell and sin and celibacy and the shame of -of out-of-wedlock birth. Of course, there are other religious communities that have abused their kids and conceal the crime so as not to bring embarrassment to the institutions. There have been scandals among the Orthodox Jews in New York in recent years. But no one has perfected this horror show like the Catholic Church. This is an institution that routinely spends millions of dollars to protect individual priests who they know have raped children for decades, moving them from one parish to the next where they can rape again, paying hush money to victims, and when these cases wind up in court doing everything they can to shame and discredit the children or the adults who were once those children. This is pure evil, and the details are insane. I'm just going to read you a snippet from the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. Okay, this is a quote. Despite a priest's admission to assaulting at least a dozen young boys, the bishop wrote to thank him for, quote, all the good you have done for God's people. The Lord who sees in private will reward, end quote. Another priest confessed to anal and oral rape of at least 15 boys, as young as seven. The bishop later met with the abuser to commend him as a, quote, person of candor and sincerity, and to compliment him for, quote, the progress he has made in controlling his, quote, addiction. When the abuser was finally removed from the priesthood years later, the bishop ordered the parish not to say why, quote, nothing else need be noted, end quote. This is further down here in the report. We came across a file in which the diocese candidly conceded that this, quote, is one of our worst cases, end quote, but of course told no one about him. Actually, we came across the statement in the files of several other priests. Then there was the file with a simple celebratory notation, quote, bad abuse case, victim sued us, we won. There was the priest, for example, who raped a seven-year-old girl after she'd had her tonsils out. This is me now. This girl was raped in her hospital room. Just picture the life of this person in the context of a faith so captivating that there was no recourse here. Picture the family around this girl. You get indoctrinated from birth into a cult, and this is a cult staffed with an inordinate number of pedophiles who gain access to your kids. Back to the report. Or the priest who made a nine-year-old give him oral sex and then rinsed out the boy's mouth with holy water to purify him. Or the boy who drank some juice at his priest's house and woke up the next morning bleeding from his rectum, unable to remember anything about the night before. Okay, so that's as much as I'll give you. Sorry to ambush you with that, but it's hard even for me to pay attention to this stuff and remember how horrible these details are. None of this should be surprising. This is in the the DNA of this organization. If you had to sign a user agreement for the Catholic Church, this should be part of it. Somewhere in the fine print, it should say, the ideology of our organization acts as a filter attracting sexually confused and conflicted and conscienceless men, and we employ these people and hide their crimes. And we've done this for over a thousand years. Now give us your kids. Hearing that the Catholic Church is raping children should be as surprising as hearing that Google and Facebook are selling your data to third parties. Anyway, it's intense to read about all this. You're you're getting me just after I did that. 
hence the topspin. Imagine if there were a Fortune 500 company that was raping and abusing children for its entire existence and systematically concealing it. What would we have done to that company? And now, consider what hasn't happened to the Catholic Church. Okay. There have been many other things in the news. I can't bear to comment on Trump at the moment, but it's good to see people in the military coming out publicly in criticism of him after uh, McRaven wrote his letter. And uh, there was the uh, Sarah Jong hiring at the New York Times. I think I'll talk about that with Jonathan Haidt, who's coming up this week. And then Jaron Lanier is finally coming up, but that had to get rescheduled. So got some good podcasts on the horizon. I'm going to break now for my discussion of funding the podcast. As always, if you've heard it, you can skip it. It's seven minutes long. But if you haven't heard it or remain to be yet convinced to support the show, you might give it a listen because it's on the basis of listener support that this thing works. Okay, back in seven. I'd like to explain why I don't run ads on the podcast, and why I've decided instead to rely entirely on listener support. For those of you who haven't heard me talk about this, or for those who might be regular listeners but feel that I should run ads, like every other podcaster, I'd like to explain my philosophy around funding this work. And you might find some of this surprising, because I actually do. Now, if you already support the show, or you're just not interested to hear my thoughts on this, I'll make it very easy for you to skip this section. It's exactly 6 minutes and 45 seconds long, so you can just scroll ahead and enjoy today's episode. But for the rest of you, I'd like to explain my thinking. I don't want to run ads here, even for products and services that I love and use myself. And there are many reasons for this. For example, the New Yorker magazine recently inquired about sponsoring the show. I love the New Yorker. I've read it for 30 years. It's one of the best magazines on earth. But it also from time to time publishes articles that are inaccurate or highly misleading especially where science is concerned. And what listeners value most from this podcast is my effort to get at the truth. You want to know what I really think. And I don't want to create any incentives that could make it more difficult for me to simply tell you what I think. If I were taking a lot of money from The New Yorker, would I be free to say that one of its writers had just published something scandalously stupid? Maybe. But the point is, I don't want to have to think twice about whether something I think is important to say might upset a sponsor. And you don't want me to have to think about that either. My goal with this podcast is to create a forum for honest conversation of a sort that scarcely exists anywhere else. I want to talk about the most pressing issues of our time without looking over my shoulder and worrying about who might be offended. And there's no way I could do that while depending on ads. But that leaves us with a challenge of how to fund the show. Many of us regularly pay $3 for a cup of coffee, and we don't think twice about it. Yet it would suddenly seem onerous to pay $3 for something that actually brings us much more value than a cup of coffee ever could. I'm guilty of feeling this way myself. And frankly, it wasn't until I started podcasting that I saw the situation from the other side. And asking for listener support is something that I approached with real trepidation in the beginning. However, having done it, I've discovered that it's actually the most straightforward relationship I can have with an audience. And that really was a surprise to me. Just think about it. If you want to read one of my books, you have to buy that book before you even know whether you'll find anything of value in it. And if I want you to read one of my books, 
I have to convince you to buy it before either of us know if you'll find anything of value in it. That is a strange transaction, and it almost never reflects the actual value given or received. Plus, there are publishers and booksellers standing between us. There are people trying to get you to buy a book, and there are people trying to get me to sell it to you. But this podcast is free, so everyone can listen to it, which for the purpose of spreading ideas is the best situation possible. I'll reach more people within 24 hours of releasing the next episode of my podcast than I will over the course of a decade with my next book. And if some of you find this podcast valuable, then you can support it to the degree that you do find it valuable, which is the transaction that most honestly reflects whatever benefit you get from my work. And it's born of a direct connection between you and me. There are no third parties here with their own interests. Now, it's a problem that so many people expect to get podcasts and other digital media for free. We've trained ourselves to expect this by creating an internet economy based on advertising. But advertising is not free because these companies want some of your time and attention. That's what they're paying for. And every podcast that relies on advertising contains five or ten minutes or more where the host reads ads. So there's this cost to the host's honesty or perceived honesty. If I spent the first five minutes of every show trying to sell you a mattress, you could reasonably worry about whether my enthusiasm for it was sincere. I mean, what else might I exaggerate if I'm willing to assure you, week after week, that memory foam will solve all your sleep problems? By self-funding this platform together, we're creating one of the only forums that is truly free from the outside pressures that are conspiring to make honest conversation on hard topics so rare. Now, digital media is experiencing a race to the bottom. And the reliance on advertising is what is dragging it down. Most of what we're worried about with companies like Facebook and Google, the invasion of privacy, the undermining of our politics, the spread of misinformation, can be directly attributed to their reliance on ad revenue. What we need is a new ethic and culture of sponsorship, where each of us takes the time to support work we value. Otherwise, the work won't get done, or it won't be nearly as good as it could be, and it will always be compromised by bad incentives. Even the best newspapers and magazines now resort to clickbait headlines and hit pieces designed to maximize traffic because they have to sell ads against that traffic to survive. The result is absolutely toxic. Even the people at the pinnacle of mainstream media, people being paid tens of millions of dollars a year, can be fired over a tweet or because they express an unpopular political opinion, even on their own platform. Depending on what you do for a living, you might feel this same pressure yourself. What do you think is true, or might be true, or might be worth discussing with an open mind that could get you fired if said in the wrong context? I'm working to create a platform where I can think out loud about precisely those things with the smartest and most courageous people I can find. And I need your help to do this. Again, I totally understand the reluctance to pay for media online, and I feel it myself whenever I hit a paywall. But more and more, when I decide that there's something I value, I just automate my support for it. This is what I'm doing with other podcasts and blogs I follow that rely on audience support. And it's what I now do with charitable organizations like the Against Malaria Foundation. I don't want to have to keep rediscovering my commitment to saving kids from malaria. I just want to decide once and then know that I'm supporting this work at a level that I'm comfortable with. So for those of you who are regular listeners who derive value from my podcast, I want to encourage you to support the show at a level you're comfortable with. But I also want to be clear about one thing. There are some of you who shouldn't support the show no matter how much value you get from it. If it causes you any financial stress, 
to give even a few dollars a month, then my appeal for listener support is not directed at you. For everyone else, please know that the small percentage of you who have begun funding the Waking Up podcast in a recurring way, whether monthly through my website or on a per-episode basis through Patreon, are making it possible to keep the podcast going, ad-free. And if the show grows in interesting ways in the future, it will be because of regular contributions, even in small amounts, from listeners like you. So thank you. Okay, well, today's guest is Marty Hazelton. Marty is the world's leading researcher on how ovulatory cycles influence women's sexuality. She's a professor of psychology at UCLA and at the Institute for Society and Genetics. She's a former editor of the leading journal in the field, Evolution and Human Behavior, and she now directs the Evolutionary Psychology Lab at UCLA. Anyway, I had a great time talking to Marty. We talk about sex and gender and the role of hormones in human psychology, something she calls Darwinian feminism. We focus on the unique hormonal experience of women. But up front, we talk about things like transgenderism and the Google memo and other controversial topics. This stuff is increasingly important, not only ethically, but politically. Cuts across many of the free speech concerns we've been airing on this show. So, without further delay, I bring you Marty Hazelton. I am here with Marty Hazelton. Marty, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, happy to be here. So, uh, describe what you do. I, I should say at the top here, we'll be discussing your book, Hormonal The Hidden Intelligence of Hormones. But uh, how is it that you have come to write about hormones and, and what is your particular academic perch? So my um, so I'm in an I would call myself an interdisciplinary evolutionary scientist, um, by which I mean, you know, and some people would probably look at my work and say, oh, that's evolutionary psychology. I know what that is. But I, I think of myself as being a little bit broader than what is typically assigned to evolutionary psychology, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly have looked at phenomena that are well-worn territory in evolutionary psychology, like mating relationships and so forth. But I've really also been interested in um, connecting the dots between using the evolutionary or adaptive logic to understand why humans do the things that they do and perhaps to get new insights into those things and test new hypotheses and actually look then at behavior and see uh, you know, what people are doing and describe that um, sometimes in some detail. But I'm also interested in the mechanisms in between, um, both the psychological mechanisms, which I think people who are interested in evolutionary psychology would recognize um, as straight up evolutionary psychology, but I've also do this work um, looking at hormonal moderators or hormonal mediators of um, the kinds of phenomena that we're interested in. And maybe this is too, um, too nitty-gritty for your audience. I don't know. Please just no, tell me if you want me to... they're nitty-gritty people. ...back off <laughs> a little bit in terms of the technical detail. But um, I think it sort of, you know, puts me in, you know, this field of biological endocrinology or social endocrinology. Mm-hmm. Um, but also behavioral ecologists, I, you know, reference their work. I look at, um, I do a lot of comparative work in setting up my studies. So I look at the literature on non-human primates and on female animals who experience estrus all the way across the spectrum. Um, so some of our insights actually come from looking at rodents. You know, humans clearly aren't rodents. 
Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them, I, at any rate. Not all of them, right? Except the rats. Yeah. But um, yeah, so um, so I the comparative work fig- also figures into my approach. So I said I I want to sort of claim a broader base for understanding the particular social phenomena that I'm interested in, which mostly have to do with intimate relationships. Mm. Well, it is a, a fascinating and fraught intersection of disciplines, <laughs> as you know, and, and I, I think I'm going to lead you onto some of that dangerous territory. There are several taboos here. There's, there's this taboo around viewing the human mind in biological terms at all, and there's a, a related taboo around acknowledging sex differences. I mean, it's even taboo in some quarters to acknowledge that biological sex is even a thing. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. <laughs> and and this leads us to what I think you consider to be mistaken notions of feminism. And in, in your book, you write about something called Darwinian feminism. Right. <laughs> so let's just pick a place to start here. I, I perhaps we should just start with the basic concern around understanding the human mind in biological and evolutionary terms. I mean, it's, it's not. I, I don't think anyone at this point thinks that the logic of evolution subsumes every interesting question about what it's like to be us or what what it is to have a human mind. But how do you view biology and psychology at this point? You know, I think you kind of have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Um, For some things, like things that are linked with reproduction, and this perhaps is why this is such well-traversed territory um, in evolutionary approaches, social scientific approaches. Um, You know, so thinking about reproduction, so close to the engine of natural selection, and therefore how our minds and the minds of our um, cousins, our non-human cousins, have been shaped, that seems very straightforward. Um, that there would be, Now, that's not going to tell us everything, so we're not going to be able to derive from first principles everything that we want to understand about humans, and there are plenty of surprises. So, and I could give some examples of some of those, but, you, but you're asking me a more uh, general question which is the intersection between psychology and biology. Um, I don't think that anybody who is credible could say that it's all biology, right? It's turtles all the way down. (laughs) Um, Because humans do things that are very uniquely human. And I think this is interesting both in response to, as a potential um, response to your question, but also as one of the things that's tripped us up in gaining access to information that I think is important. So humans are undeniably their own kind of special species, right? We can drive Porsches, we can, you know, make lattes, we can, um, we speak multiple languages, we can read and write in those languages. We have a way of preserving cultural knowledge over time that has allowed us to um, technologically exploit our, our modern environment or our environment in general to an extent that you just don't see with, with other species. Um, so I think that seeing, so that's just a really important thing to acknowledge, and any competent treatment of evolution and human behavior will include a large component that explores how those things happen, how they make humans unique, how they um, have, have um, make the animal models or the more you know, purely biological models inadequate as the full story. You know, of course, the, the line between biology and culture is difficult to draw because much of culture 
has to be viewed as a kind of extended phenotype. And, you know, we've evolved for, for some tens of That's thousands right. of years yeah. in the context of, of having linguistically based culture. Yes. And I think that there are some fa- fascinating evolutionary psychological questions there. So um, we can ask the question, well, what are the kinds of things that human, humans bring when they are entering their social world? What are the kinds of things that they bring with them that help them acquire these useful bits of culture? So things like, and this is some work that was done at UCLA um, and can, continues to be done all over. Um, it's gotten very popular. It's gotten very influential, I should say. And that is um, thinking about how we um, keenly observe different potential behavioral models and um, which models are mo- which of those models have behavior that is most likely to be repeated because they show some signs of success, right? So I think that there are some really fascinating evolutionary psychological questions about what is the evolved machinery that we bring to this uh, our social world that that allows us to um, practice, transmit, benefit from right. technology. Let's focus now on sex and gender, because this is, this is really where you have spent most of your time. First, I think the difference between sex and gender may not even be clear to most people. How do you define these terms? Yeah, well, I think that there's, there's some disagreement about just exactly how we should define the terms. Um, so I think of gender as being more of the sort of like continuous um, difference in masculinity and femininity. So you can occupy any number of different levels of relative femininity or relative masculinity, the things that we would recognize. So if we can think about masculine and feminine as um, what is gender typical, um, there is still a ton of variation between those gender typical um, central tendencies. And so I tend, and so I think it is most appropriate to, and it becomes very awkward. Um, otherwise, it's most appropriate to to refer to those things as gender. You know, I I read a paper. It's been a few years now, um, but I believe it was about mate copying, mate choice copying in guppies. And the guppies in the paper were referred to as having gender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. And I just thought, hmm, okay, this is definitely not how I'm thinking of the the appropriate definition of the word. But I think what it points out, yeah, is that people are reluctant to use the word sex, male, female. Right. That's what I was going to say. There's something awkward, not not even socially, but just semantically or grammatically using sex in all of these sentences. And I'm sure that in the past I have used gender in many of these cases as a synonym for biological sex. Yes. And so I would tend to think of, so biological sex. And I, I talk about, so I teach a class an entire um, year-long freshman cluster course, the so-called sex cluster. Um, it's all about sex and gender. Um, and um, in that class, we dig deeply into these issues. But one of the things that we do is we sort of arrive at some common definitions. Um, and sex and gender, the difference between sex and gender is one of those. And so the way that we tend to think about sex and the way that I think about it is it's more like understanding what are those central tendencies of masculinity and femininity that we can identify as being sexually dimorphic characteristics of, of human beings. Now, of course, there are going to be exceptions, right? There are, um, there are inter- cases, fascinating cases of intersex. Um, there's the question of sexual orientation, which takes people away from 
those gender typical um, categories. And so there's still plenty of um, variation, but I, but I tend to be comfortable with using the word sex referring to biological sex. So if we're talking about at the chromosomal level, if we're talking about um, on average differences in hormones, although even there things can get a little squishy, but then then I find I think sex is is really most appropriate. And and even somebody's identity, whether they identify as male or female, I, I would often be comfortable using the word sex there as well. Now that we're fully in the wilderness, let's just define <laughs> some more of these terms. So so intersex and transgender and non-binary, sure. give me the lexicon. Yeah, so intersex people are born um, with a phenotype that is neither clearly male nor female in some important way. And so the, the classic case, I suppose, would be looking at babies who are born with genitalia that are neither clearly male nor female. So they have an intersex condition. Is there a chromosomal abnormality here? We're just talking about amounts of, of testosterone or not? It has, it has lots of um, potential triggers. So humans, when we are born, we are sort of what look, you know, those, the, there's sort of a female default to our phenotype. And then with the appropriate gene and hormone actions, you'll see sex differentiation. Um, you'll see sex differences emerge between males and females in utero and, and well beyond, of course. Um, and so there, at any of those levels, something could be different um, in, during development. So whether it be at the chromosomal, you know, whether you're XX or XY, um, and some XX individuals will appear to be male in their phenotype. And so, so you know, so there are so there are the genetic predictors, but then there are other things that can happen down the line that involve hormone levels, um, and potentially also some environmental uh, determinants, environmental trauma. That's the easiest case. Um, somebody who has a botched genital surgery and is that changed from male to female or vice versa um, would also potentially have an intersex identity fall into that category of intersex. What's really Interesting, I think, and I think really pushes the boundaries of political correctness is to ask the question, well, we know what's gender typical. Usually a male is attracted to a female, a female is attracted to a male. What about these very numerous voluminous cases of people who are um, attracted to members of the same sex or maybe or have bisexual attraction or maybe they just change their attractions over time? Do we think about that as a sort of intersex condition, even though everything else about them might be very gender typical? Right. <laughs> so let me just, uh, before I wade into that, so non-binary yes, right. is a statement about a person's self-perceived gender weighting? Yes, yes. And so those, those may be people who have an intersex condition um, or who just want to not be in the gender binary. They um, are more comfortable being in between, perhaps not having people know anything about the biological foundations of, of their sex at some level. Um, so these are people who will identify openly as queer. Often those people are, um, have same-sex attractions, and so part of their queer identity will be breaking out of that binary with respect to you know, who one is attracted to. Um, there's just, there are lots of flavors in the, uh, in the, um, you know, the sexuality rainbow, so to speak. 
um, for humans, and we're discovering even more of them um, as we move along. So that's so that's uh, queer or non-binary. Um, but then there are, of course, all of the different boxes that you might be able to check on a questionnaire about your sexual orientation. Yeah, the boxes are, are proliferating. Somebody I saw on Twitter a few months back took a a picture of the the beginning of I think it was like the the, the LSAT or some other standardized test where they were asked to check their their gender and uh, there was something like you know 12 boxes right that doesn't surprise me yeah and maybe there need to be 12 boxes so that everybody's preference is um, acknowledged and respected you know i know that it's it's bothersome to people who are you know who really prefer binaries and boxes um, and want to categorize the world in that way. And so we make people uncomfortable, I think, when we acknowledge that there are these variations. But I think it's really important to do. Um, just, you know, as a scientist who studies these topics that have real human ref- relevance, so these, these students come into my class um, and they may, may be chest, uh, questioning their gender identity. They may be ask, have a lot of questions about, you know, how they are different in some way from others that they have noticed. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of at my time here at UCLA is exploring those things, talking about them, and giving students a language to do both, um, to ask some questions about themselves, but also to, you know, sort of have their consciousness raised about um, these gendered issues in our everyday society. Well, I wasn't actually planning to start here, but now that we've opened (laughs) Pandora's box, let's just stay with these more esoteric questions before we get into just basic differences between men and women. So just to pivot back to the the time bomb, it sounds like you armed for us. Is it a plausible thesis that homosexuality should be thought of in terms of intersex? Is that what you just suggested? Um, Well... I think that we're really pushing the boundaries when we ask that question. Um, and no doubt people will get quite irritated with me for having raised it. Um, but I think that if what, if what we mean by sex um, is gender typicality, and gender typicality is not hard for us to quantify. So what are the, on average, what are the differences? What, what are men like on average? What are women like? We respect the fact, of course, that, you know, in defining that, that there's a lot of variation. Um, But as soon as we recognize that an individual is not fitting into that binary or not even really getting close to the on average um, male or female in their in certain aspects of their phenotype, then I think we we ask the question, well, do we want to consider that to be an intersex case. I wouldn't say condition necessarily, um, because that medicalizes it a little bit too much. But, you know, so as soon as we apply, start being principled in our application of these definitions, then I I think it leads us to these questions, which rightly have made people quite uncomfortable. Well, then what would you do with all the other just ambiguities of human sexuality or or the, the varieties? So you have things that are, I guess, traditionally classed as paraphilia or, you know, something that's it's definitely non-standard if someone, if you have a boot fetish or you have something yeah. that's, you know, not especially well-subscribed, <laughs> does that throw a, a wrench into any kind of paradigm where you would want to just think in terms of this single continuum? Well, I, I think that we might think about those cases as just different. And so there, there are all kinds of idiosyncr- 
idiosyncrasies that apply to individual humans. So, you know, whether you like somebody with blue eyes versus somebody with brown eyes, um, those are some idiosyncratic preferences that we have. And I would put some of those paraphilias in that idiosyncratic preference bin. Do we know what the origin of those things are? No, I don't think we do. I don't think we anybody will tell us that they have got, you know, the lock on the explanation for foot fetishes. You know, but so I would I wouldn't think that those cases would challenge thinking about sex as this on average difference or as, you know, what is gender typical for male and female. Those are just idiosyncratic variations um, in the same way that, you know, different people's noses are, are different shaped and so on. The, the, only, the only other sort of category, just so that we're reasonably comprehensive, um, would be you started to ask about trans people. And, you know, often, and so, and that, talk about controversy. Um, I don't know if you were um, a party to the controversy that Mike Bailey stepped into when his book, The Man Who Would Be Queen, came out. No, no. People are very sensitive about these identity issues, and trans identity is very much a central identity issue. So how people are understanding your experience of the world if they're telling you, well, you know, my guess is that what you really have is um, sort of some sort of a paraphilia as opposed to, no, we are totally agree, can agree that um, you are, you know, you you are uncomfortable in a man's body because somewhere in there, there is a female, uh, female gendered substance, right? Or, you know, the reverse for, you know, people who transition from women to men. Is it far more common to transition from man to woman than woman to man? I don't know that, I, I don't know all of the statistics on that, but when we run our transgender panel, um, which is always just incredibly fascinating to hear these people's stories um, and, you know, how they've overcome some pretty substantial adversity to get where they are and to, you know, become comfortable in their skin in, in most cases. Um, we tip, tend to have more um, female, I'm sorry, male to female cases. And so maybe those people are just more out about their um, trans orientation, or maybe the more, they are, are more numerous. Right. Well, so obviously there, there are political questions here, there are psychological questions, there are biological questions, there are health-related questions. Let's take the, the especially pressing case of a child that is, is transgender or declaring him or herself to be, and really seems to be. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably close to at least one person who, where it's, you know, I, you know I've known this girl now since she was maybe five, and there was just any idea that some cultural construct or, you know, the imposition of any kind of outside dogmatism to this little person's identity is just a total non-starter. I mean, yeah, this is, this right. is a clearly a biologically driven phenomenon of a biological boy who is wanting to transition to being a girl. And these choices haven't arrived yet, but at some point, you, I'm sure someone will be offering you know, puberty blockers or some, some way of making this transition easier if, the, if this transition is, in fact, going to stick. But you know, I understand from your book that some significant number, even a majority of cases of, of transgender children grow out of their, their identity 
crisis and they you know they simply become gay so how do you this just seems like an especially fraught area how how do you think about this so there's i think that there's been really constructive debate about this issue um so on one hand we might say well if this person is genuinely uncomfortable with the gender that they are practicing their gender that they are assigned then wouldn't the nice thing to do wouldn't the the thing to do that would help this person live a productive life give um you know enable them to um block whatever hormones might be affecting their you know because if you don't block those hormones during puberty they're irreversible um consequences those they have irreversible effects on the phenotype and so there's i think a reasonable argument to be made there right but then on the other hand and here's where i think that the debate has gotten is gotten very intelligent on the other hand a lot of these kids who boys who dress up in girls um clothing let's just say if we you know you are by doing things like give them um hormone blockers um you are putting them on a path toward having a more female like phenotype that is irreversible So wouldn't it make more sense according to this argument and this isn't an argument that I'm necessarily making but according to this argument wouldn't it make make more sense just to let this person have a few more years under their belt of maturing and seeing what it feels like to be in a female identity as somebody who has many boy attributes uh before making those transitions so you know like I said it's it's so it's it's tough because um there are irreversible effects of uh those hormones as we move through puberty and so forth but um but if you are one of these kids who was treated um with hormone blockers and then later on in your life you were to decide well you know i really just think i was a gay man um then that's that's the tough case right that's that's the thing that that uh, people who are making these arguments are concerned about well aren't they both the tough case i mean it's irreversible whatever you do or don't do yeah i suppose you're right so you just have to i mean basically you're making a probability judgment whether this is very very likely to be a child who's going to grow out of it and become gay or or someone who knows is is actually sure she's in the wrong body or he's in the right. wrong body Right. And so I guess then the question would be and this would this is what if if it were me personally being involved in one of these decisions maybe involving my own children I would just want to know you know how much do we think a 5-year-old's gender identity is is the sort of final state of affairs do they know I mean certainly that that they would be different and that that would have a biological foundation as you the in the example that you gave from your friends um that you know seems like something we absolutely must respect but does that mean that it is a medical emergency and needs to be taken care of right now um or do we wait a little while and see um how the kid feels in the years to come okay so let's retrace our steps and just get down to the basic difference between men and women now this is it's amazing that this is a a controversial area but give me the big picture issue around just acknowledging that there are biological differences between men and women that very likely and in certain well established cases have psychological consequences what what is the difficulty around admitting this um well i'd say that the one of the key things is that as soon as we start talking about biological foundations people are going to 
like the lay public, for example, might, or certain members of the lay public, um, might have a tendency to think, oh, okay, biological explanation. I'm going to think about this categorically. If this person's behavior, um, let's say their ability to achieve in the workplace, if, you know, if there's some potential way of understanding some of those, um, the things that drive those people to be particularly good in those professions or just to merely want to be in those sorts of um, professions, as soon as we acknowledge that there's a biological foundation, then that means that, you know, we should confine women or can only think of women um, as, you know, embodying the girlish stereotypes, um, at, you know, that they should be, you know, in the maternal role. And if they try to achieve, they will somehow get smashed up against the um, glass ceiling. And I think that that is a lot of what people are concerned about. And that's a lot of what has delayed our understanding of some of the biological foundations of behavior. And I can certainly speak about that with respect to women and hormones, um, since it's something that I write about fairly extensively in the book. Yeah. So obviously, there have been some very prominent cases of people getting fired for acknowledging or speculating about critical differences between men and women that, that might explain differential success or differential representation in various fields. And, and the two that come to mind for me are Lawrence Summers, a long time ago, president of Harvard, gave a speech where he, if memory serves, he said, I think quite uncontroversially, that the based on the, the literature as it existed then and as it still exists, he was suggesting that there's there's more variance in the kind of quantitative ability. I think he was talking about you know engineering and STEM. Let's throw generic math in there as well. He was talking about the consequence of there being more variance in the distribution for quantitative ability for men than for women, which would give you kind of fatter tails at both ends. And so when you're talking about the the 1% of the 1% in ability, you would see a, a much greater representation of men there than women. And that, and that alone could explain why you see this crazy difference in certain fields. And, you know, so he was just thrown from the ramparts. And then we have the James Damore memo at Google, where he speculated mostly about not differential ability, but differential interest among women and men for certain kinds of jobs, in this case, computer programming. And, you know, he was fired for having, on Google's account, trafficked in some damaging gender or sex stereotypes, whereas most people who looked at his memo thought that he had essentially written a fairly accurate summary of the state of the literature. So how, how do you view these situations? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess there, there are two things that I'd like to, um, two points I'd like to make. Um, one is that I think that a lot of the controversy that ensued for, in these particular cases and in others is a result of the misconception that as soon as you have a biological explanation, that means that there are no other factors at play. Um, and so we, of course, as social scientists, we know that it's always an interaction. There's, you know, there, you can't have the action, any action of biology without environmental inputs, and certainly everything is occurring within a social context. And also that our social context is um, going to be affected by our evolved biology. So it's always both. Um, I, when I have given talks, um, sometimes at conferences, have um, be gotten some pushback on understanding uh, the relationship between women's hormones 
and a whole variety of things. Um, their mate preferences, but also um, some of their uh, preferences, um, their economic behavior, and so forth. Um, and people have gotten really upset about this and have even said things like, you know, um, well, people are just going to believe that it's all biology if you're going out there and saying that. And I said, well, then that means we are not doing our job as competent. You know, we should get our PhDs revoked if we can't explain or that if we don't take the time to explain that it's got to be both, right? So we can't just, and that can't be the guiding factor that um, makes us do this kind of research or avoid doing this kind of research um, because we're going to miss out on way too many important questions. And I do want to, I do want to come back to that um, issue because I think that that's an important part of the Darwinian feminism stance that I take. Um, but the other thing that I want to say, um, and this is more on the technical side, is that it is absolutely true that as soon as we start looking at something that is on average different between men and women, let's take a, a really fairly large sex difference, and that is physical, the tendency to engage in physical aggression. That's a, that is considered to be, by most standards, a fairly large uh, difference. Um, but there's still a ton of, of variation. There's, you know, there's the mean for men, the mean for women, or you can look at boys and girls doing rough and tumble play on the, on the playground. Um, and then you can all, but you can also see that there will be some girls who will be above the mean, above the, the boy mean, and there will be some boys who will be um, below the girl mean in terms of their aggressive behaviors. But if you look at the extremes, I think this is absolutely a valid point. If you look at the extremes and you look at aggressive behavior, for example, amongst men, you get out to the tails and there's little to no representation for women there. And so then you can ask yourself the question, well, what, what, I might, be, what might I be seeing when I look out at the world as a scientist that this could potentially, for which this is relevant? And so things like the really extreme court, uh, cases of male-on-male -male aggression, so homicide, for example. Women aren't doing this. Right. Girls are not right. doing Happily. this. Happily. So, so this point about respecting the fact that there's variation, there's differences between men and women, yes, but also being mindful of the implications for, um, you know, extreme, in the case of aggression, extreme uh, passivity uh, down at the female end and um, or in that, you know, that, te uh, that end of the distribution um, that is mostly fem females um, or extreme forms of aggression. It's perhaps a distinction without much of a difference, but in the case of some of these variables, as in the one cited by Larry Summers, this can be true even if the means are the same. So even if, if mean quantitative ability is the same between men and women, if there's more variance in one distribution, you can have a, a very different looking tail on either end. And, and with something like aggression or upper body strength, you know, the means are, are probably nowhere near one another. And you know, we would expect even more difference at the tails. Yes. Yeah. So the Demore firing is is more recent. Did you did you read his memo? Did you pay attention to this? Or I just... have not. I've not as studied on that one as as I as I should be. Um, I was around as the Larry Summers um, situation was was exploding, and there were some um, implications. You know, people were talking about it a lot here at UCLA on campus. So. Do I? What do I have on it? I think that I think that um, so Alice Drager, who you might have talked to about her book Galileo's Middle Finger, no, which is I one of my favorite I, I've books heard of her, but I, I actually I've never crossed oh, paths with her. She's 
She's really incredibly smart. So she advocates for, for those of us who do um, controversial research, when our university um, has a public press release or when the paper is just going to hit the shelves, that we also do sort of like an FAQs, you know, frequently asked questions or, and, and in her, the way she put it very cleverly when she was giving a conference talk on this stuff um, was, um, here's what I didn't mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, you know, so she, what she's saying is that we really have to stick up for ourselves when we are getting into this controversial territory, and we need to get out there ahead of it. We can't be in defensive mode saying, well, I didn't, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that only, you know, women should occupy positions of power. I didn't mean that only women should be physics professors and math professors. But instead, going out there ahead of time and saying uh, what the crucial me- messages are in, in order to um, prevent any of this controversy from occurring. So I think in both of these cases, those guys would have probably benefited from doing something along those lines, or at least recognizing that um, although these are important issues for us to understand and discuss as social scientists or scientists more broadly, including those things in political speeches probably is not. Is not it's not, not the right venue. Um, and it's probably just going to cause you more, more trouble than the issue deserves. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a little too harsh on my part. The, the issue deserves a lot of attention, of course. But I think that you just have to be careful. Biology is not necessarily going to behave itself with respect to our, our political considerations. So, I mean, for instance, let's just say, I mean, I'm just making this up, but I, I, I can't imagine this is too far from what is true. Let's just say that the percentage of human beings who sexually molest children is men are inordinately represented in that category over women. I don't, I don't know what it is. If you do, happily fill in the blank for me. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that statistic myself. Right, but let's just say that you know, if we if we had the full data set of you know, male and female nannies who molest the children in their charge, you know, let's say it's 90% men. If that were true, and if that were a, a overriding concern of someone who was hiring a nanny, you could see people just by default saying, listen, I'm, I'm just not going to roll the dice with a male nanny. I don't care how nice this guy seemed in the interview. It's just, you know, I'll place my bet with the next woman who comes to the door. It's possible we'll find out those sorts of things about you know various aspects of human nature, and it is a challenge to have an honest conversation when you when you stumble on those facts because you know I mean, obviously the the male nanny lobby is not especially large, but this is something that we are will continually fall into, and the messenger will be shot more often than not in the current environment by simply declaring what the the data seem to be. Yes, I think that that is that is most definitely a risk. In my case, um, I've definitely landed in the middle of some controversies concerning women's hormones and their behavior. Um, and so I've, I've been there. I know I know what it's like to um, have people use all sorts of tactics that are, in my view, independent. But, you know, in some some cases, they represent genuine concerns. Um, and those are the concerns that I share. But there are others where I think that people just are really uncomfortable with biological explanations for behavior because they're concerned 
about, you know, the, the stereotypes being automatically applied. So the hormonal woman, can she, um, you know, should, should she be in the White House? You know, should we give her access to the red button? You know, and... Well, I think Trump cured you of that particular quibble for, yeah. for the rest of your career. I mean, the, the fact that we could openly worry about having someone erratic and perhaps driven by forces we don't understand in the biology of the brain in the Oval Office, I think we have the, the most <laughs> erratic woman we'll ever have there currently. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to ask yourself the question, and, and this is indeed what I've done when I've talked about these issues, you know. So there, there's the stereotype of the hormonal woman, and then there's the reality of the hormonal woman. We should maybe um, get back to that yeah. as part of our conversation. But then there, there's the issue of, you know, well, even if the stereotype were to be true, does that, should that be disqualifying um, to women of being in these positions of political power? There's a double standard here in how we think about hormones, and perhaps we should We'll just jump into a conversation about hormones yes. now, but I mean, men are obviously, they're, they're not driven by a 28-day cycle That's with right. respect to testosterone, but it's not hard to find a, a man who has some form of testosterone poisoning that's addling his right. thoughts. Yeah. I mean, so my, my um, counterpoint to those sorts of concerns is, is usually, well, men have hormone cycles too. And you have to ask yourself, you know, when you're talking about, you know, access to the red button in the White House. Well, who put the red button there in the first place? Um, and so I'm not saying that it means that men are less well-suited for political office than women are, but I completely agree with you that there is a double standard. So recognizing that hormones affect women's behaviors seems to have much different political implications and has certainly been used uh, against women throughout the, the history of our exploration of understanding women and hormones, whereas the same thing doesn't apply to men. Um, and so there was a, a paper that was published um, in Psychological Science, Premier Psychological Journal, that purported to show that um, women on high fertility days of the cycle, so that's the day of ovulation and a few days before that, the time when a woman might potentially become pregnant, that her political preferences were different at that phase of her cycle than in a non-fertile phase of, their, of her cycle. Um, and specifically that uh, women who were in the fertile phase of their cycle tended to tilt a little bit more. So this was in 2012 in the midst of the election, Obama-Romney election, uh, tended to tilt a little bit more toward preference yeah. for Obama, right? Um, whereas the reverse was true for um, women in the low fertility phase of their cycle. And there were some complications about the results. Um, so it's not quite as straightforward as, as I just put it to you. I think it's flipped from what I expected it would be. I, I thought that, oh. that during the high fertility phase, women would be more attracted to the strong-jawed Romney. Is that not the case? Oh, no, no. That was, well, so they preferred more Obama-like features. Oh, interesting. But it was also partly dependent on their relationship status. That was particularly true if women were single. Um, so you could think about that from this general approach that we've taken in my lab of, of women's sexuality being turned on, that they are potentially interested in certain kinds of male qualities that at least in ancestral circumstances would have um, transmitted good genes to their offspring or, just, or given their offspring attributes that made them more likely to be able to survive and so forth. That, you know, I mean, maybe there could be a debate about who's hunkier, uh, Obama or Romney. But I think that, that people were in general thinking that, that he was the more sexually interesting figure. Oh, interesting. Um, well, I guess, and, I mean, R Romney was a little bit older at, th at that point than yeah, I'm, I'm picturing older. him. Yeah, a little older. You know, definitely, definitely wasn't getting the press for being the sexy guy. Right. 
So, but the reason I wanted to raise this, um, I don't know whether those findings will replicate. I don't particularly have a strong uh, view on whether um, they're all that meaningful. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm not going to, and I wouldn't even place bets on whether the finds will rep- findings will replicate. But here's the thing that's really fascinating. Um, the blogosphere, CNN published a paper saying, oh, there's this paper coming out in psychological science. This, these are in generally, in general, um, the findings. So they published an article, I should say. Um, and it was, you know, there, were, there was an immediate uh, backlash. Uh, so people said things like, um, you know, CNN thinks crazy ladies vote with their vaginas. This was in the um, blogosphere. CNN thinks crazy ladies vote with their uh, vaginas. CNN, um, you know, this is exactly the uh, nightmare of women rampaging through the polls, uh, voting for men by the strength of their chin and so forth. But you didn't. And so CNN actually did what is journalistically nearly unthinkable. And they retracted the story. They took it down. Wow. Of course, it was the cat was out of the bag and, and people were able to read the story. Um, but they retracted the story because of this um, backlash in the feminist um, blogosphere and elsewhere um, in uh, scientific papers that were reporting on this in general. But there was no equivalent um, when there was a paper that was published that showed that stronger men, so men were higher in testosterone. Um, have a more militant have a more militant set of political preferences than men who are less strong. Okay, so that's an example of men's hormones affecting their political preferences. But nowhere in the blogosphere did we see something saying, you know, men are going to the polls to vote with their penises. Right. 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 So that's just, I think, a really nice example of that double standard there. Right. Well, you've given me two titles that I might use for this podcast. I'm not sure which one I'm going to take. Uh oh. <laughs> So, Why do men not vote with their penises? Yes, yes. So let, let's just talk about this hormones in general for a second, because, because I think a lot of people imagine that we have escaped the influence of hormones to some degree, or that this, these are not especially important. That it's like there's just background noise for humanity in general. What are some common misunderstandings in this area? Yeah. So when I got involved in this research area about 20 years ago, the general thinking was, well, humans, they, they look different from a lot of species that have what's called so, uh, so-called classic estrus. So a female hamster won't engage in mating behavior at all unless she's an estrus. In fact, she'll be quite violent with any male who tries to approach her. Um, and so their, their sexuality is turned on and limited to the, the, that narrow window of fertility within the cycle. And that's true for a variety of other species as well. Whereas if you look at other species, other primate species in particular, and humans, to make the point in a direct way, we appeared to, and this is the language that had been, was used, we appeared to be, quote, emancipated from hormonal control. Why was that? Because we have an extreme version of extended sexuality. So humans will basically engage in sexual behavior at any time, at least with respect to fertility within the cycle. So um, sexuality is occurring throughout the uh, 28-day, on average, cycle for women. It occurs whether a woman is using hormonal contraceptives, whether she is not. Um, sexuality it occurs during, you know, after a woman becomes pregnant but has not yet given birth to a child. It occurs in the postpartum period. It occurs after all reproduction for a woman has ceased entirely in menopause. And so it looked like a case for understanding sexuality 
in ways that was basically independent from hormonal influence. And that was the the situation when I walked into this research. But I just didn't think that that seemed very plausible because the few fertile days of the cycle, right, so day of ovulation a few days before that, that is when the sexual decision-making that a woman engages in has really big consequences. It could be the time um, when she's choosing the, the ultimate father, biological father for her offspring. So I wanted to push this, push back on this a little bit. But absolutely, the backdrop was um, humans have, you know, don't experience these forms of hormonal control. And actually, the way I put it is um, I talk about hormonal nudges. So it's not so much control, but rather that, you know, we are feeling a little bit differently uh, on one day of the cycle um, as compared to the next or in one sort of hormonal state as compared to another. Um, And we can then, you know, choose to act on those desires or preferences or not. So they're, they're nudges, but there's not strict one-to-one hormonal behavioral, uh, a hormonal behavioral um, control circuit there. So what are some of the nudges? Yes. So, um, so women, one of our first findings was that women, if they were involved in relationships, they began to notice men other than their long-term partners. Um, and that was particularly true if they told us that the partners that they were involved with, their long-term partner, was, um, you know, a really nice guy, but maybe not the sexiest guy around. Um, then they would begin to notice other men. And that those were some of our first findings. Um, and we were just asking women to report to us every day on their attractions to their own partners, to other men, and a variety of other um, things that might potentially change across the cycle. And that was one of the ones that we found. Some um, one that was very interesting for me to speak about at conferences. Men often got very squirmy in their chairs when I was describing the findings that, you know, women are evaluating their partner's sexual attractiveness, and we see this pattern um, if those partners are relatively low in sexual attractiveness. I can see a lot of men discreetly trying to figure out where in their (laughs) calendar their significant others are uh, menstruating. Um, so, so that's one, uh, set of findings. Um, women also appear to be more social. So they, um, and an early finding in, in this area, and one that I think is a really pioneering finding, looked at, um, women's steps on the pedometer and showed that on fertile days of the cycle, they basically got out of the house more. They were locomoting more. So that, and this has a, has a interesting parallel to what we see in non-humans uh, and in rodents in particular, they run in their wheels more on fertile days of the cycle. So that was that sort of potentially goes in the category of trivia, but I think it's, it's got um, some broader implications. One is that it potentially tells us something about women's mate search effort, that they are opening their eyes, that they're considering what their alternatives may be, and they may or they may not uh, act on those um, attractions on those high fertility days of the cycle. And then the other is, um, so as soon as people became aware that females were, quote, messy in this way, they were running in their wheels more on fertile days of the cycle. They, um, in the human case, are doing more steps on their pedometer. And there are a variety of other, other um, hormone behavior relationships that were documented. So people said, you know what, the female case is just too messy. Let's study males to the exclusion of females. We'll get, you know, males can be viewed as the default. Anyway, if we're talking about biomedical research or maybe if we're talking about something um, like sexuality, males can be viewed as the the default. And so we don't need to study those messy females. And now, of course, 
there have been there's been big discussion and new NIH guidelines that require that females be studied in parity with males. Oh, so um, j- just to be clear, Marty, because mm-hmm. it wasn't, I don't think it was totally clear you were talking literally about rats in their in their mm-hmm. wheels. Yes. So, so it's, I think many people understand that in medicine, men have been treated as the default human, I think, to the great disadvantage of women's health. Right. But that's, that's even true in animal models like rodents. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's true, and and it's a it's a real problem. Um, so there are cases that make it clear, like the case of heart disease. Studying heart disease in men doesn't give you, you know, not all, everything that you've learned in that case will apply to women, to women's detriment. So so I think that that's really crucial. Um, but if we also look at things like um, sexuality and well being, if we're leaving females aside and we're leaving um, humans uh, aside, then we're missing out on all kinds of important information. I guess one other thing that I was intending to insert there is that even at the cellular level, so we know that the, the heart disease case is a fairly clear cut one, but even if you look at things at the biology at the cellular level in males versus females, things are different. So we certainly can't be comfortable with re- regarding males as the default yeah. at any level. Yeah, I think that in the heart disease case, I would need to check these figures, but I think it's something like in 40% of men, the first sign of heart disease is death. And I think that's something like 60% <laughs> in women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that sounds like a real inequality, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. Not un- understanding that. So just to, to backtrack for a second. So th- as far as the the nudges are concerned, so we're here, here we're talking about differences in female behavior around ovulation. If I recall, you had a, a you did a, a very clever but slightly icky study uh, called the <laughs> cell phone study. Yes, right. Um, so, uh, you know, I didn't get involved in this area to do to stir up controversy, but I seem to keep. I seem to have a knack for stepping into it anyway. And so this is one with my uh, colleague and good friend, Deborah Lieberman, who studies kinship and um, how humans identify their close kin. So she's done some of these really cool studies in the kibbutzes um, that show that, you know, boys and girls, when they're raised together and they otherwise would be perfectly appropriate mates, um, they're like, no way, ick, I feel like he's my brother. I can't, you know, I can't marry him. Anyway, so she's very interested in kin detection. Um, and kinship. And she said, you know, Marty, there is a phenomenon in the, you know, I think it, and I think it was um, horses and some other um, related species where females will actively avoid their male, male kin on fertile days of the cycle. And I was like, whoa, that's fascinating. Um, and so we decided, and I, I said, that's fascinating. And that is a pretty subtle hypothesis, too. Um, so I think that would be worth testing just to, you know, see whether it's supported and therefore can sort of bolster uh, interest in this area, which it didn't. It really doesn't get, <laughs> the paper doesn't get cited very Not often. Not a lot of takers P- for Possibly that. because of the ick factor. Um, so we made, u- made use of the fact that cell phone records are about a month long, so that was convenient. Um, and we just looked at women's calling patterns um, did they call their male? So they were calling, most of the women in the study were calling both their fathers and their mothers using separate cell phone numbers for moms and dads. So we had this nice, clean comparison. We could say, okay, when her, is she calling her dad equally as often across these days of the cycle? Is she calling her mom equally as often across days of the cycle? And then also, 
you know, when their parents call them, you know, how long is the latency there before she hangs up? Um, and what we found was that women on fertile days of the cycle, they called their fathers less, less often. And indeed, they did hang up more quickly when their fathers called them. We found a different pattern for discussions with moms. Um, and so that's, that was consistent with the avoid kin on fertile days of the cycle hypothesis. Um, we didn't know what to expect for interactions with moms. Um, and, what, and indeed, what we found was a pattern that was the reverse of the pattern with dads. Women tended to talk if anything, a little bit more to their moms on fertile days of the cycle. And we puzzled a little bit about what that might reflect. And one of the things that we found in doing some follow-up analysis was that women who are particularly close to their mothers were the ones who were increasing their calling on fertile days of the cycle. So it suggests that, you know, there's something going on in these women's social lives that's warranting a discussion with a close other, and in this case, their moms. So the ick factor. So if it's not obvious why this is icky, <laughs> um, one way of understanding this is that females are avoiding interacting with male kin. Why would you need to avo avoid interacting with a male kin member unless that kin member might be interested in mating with you? So that's the icky thing, right? There is a potentially more palatable alternative explanation to that, and that would be that women, because they're you know, more mating-oriented because they might be more interested in some of these bad boy qualities on fertile days of the cycle. They are avoiding uh, paternal control, and we can't rule that out as an alternative explanation. But thank you for asking yeah, about the yeah. cell phone study. I, was, I thought that it was just going to be like one of those citation classics, but I think that the ick factor is getting in the way. Yeah, no doubt. The kibbutz data is fascinating, too. It's just, is this an established fact that if kids are essentially raised as siblings, even though they have no genetic relation, they, the, the ick they factor... They feel as if they are, yes. That's very Is it very as robust, robust as for, for actual siblings? That's a good question. You might need to have Deb Lieberman on your podcast for, for all of the details. But, um, you know, it's sort of uncanny. And I don't know if you grew up with anybody who was uh, that close to you. No. Um, but I, you know, had a um, close male friend... If he listens to podcasts, maybe he'll hear about this. <laughs> um, but, you know, and his mother and my mother were best buddies. And we even lived all in the same housing uh, condo complex. And he would have been a perfectly good candidate for a boyfriend. And I just always had this very strong feeling like, no, he, you know, something about him is not quite right. Maybe he Ick. smells funny, yeah. you know, so... All right. Well, we, we won't tag him on yeah. social media when we release this. <laughs> Let's hope not. I'm sure he's perfectly yeah, good did, mate did, for somebody. I guess, I, guess I guess I got into a little bit of a self-disclosing mode as I was writing the book, which was not initially what I'd planned to do. But it's part of the story, right? So I'm a woman doing this research, and um, my insights are sometimes, you know, are reflected in the research that we ultimately did. So I knew that there was variation in my experiences of the world, my uh, simple, simply, you know, my desire to be social. Um, and so I wanted to ask the question, well, you know, is that just random variation? Is that just, you know, consistent with the myth of the fickle female? And I didn't think either one of those seemed like it would um, apply. And so um some, so there are some personal stories, and in some cases, they were linked fairly in a fairly direct way with some of the things we ultimately learned. Now, I don't consider myself to be the ultimate N of one, 
And indeed, there are lots of things that we we observed in the lab that I which just completely came out of left field for me. So this um, differential association with moms and dads, you know, I could see where I, where the hypothesis came from, but it was certainly nothing that I would have observed in my everyday life um, had I not been challenged to do the scientific study. Not to make your life more difficult, but can you lead us through the thicket of PMS? What is the reality of PMS, and should we? even think about it. Yes. Um, well, so one of the things that uh, I think it's a real thing, um, and, you know, and, and there's, there are decades of, of research documenting that at least a substantial minority of women experience um, discomfort on the few days leading up to menstrual onset, and then they feel, usually feel some relief of those. Um, so it could be things like irritability, um, cramping, uh, physical symptoms like cramping and so forth. Um, and, you know, a fairly substantial um, number of women experience these things. But one of the first, um, so there have been papers that have cropped up as some of these cycle, um, you know, hormone and behaviors um, phenomena are reported in the literature. There are, uh, are these waves of questioning, which is good. That's good for a healthy science. And then you respond to the questions that are raised. But one of the first thing that pe- things that people challenged, and this was before I'd come on, on the scene and done any of this research, was just questioning whether PMS were a real thing. Um, and I think that that is quite fascinating because there, it, there's robust evidence that it is a real thing, even if it doesn't characterize every single woman. But I think that it also reflects this concern that people had, that as soon as we say that PMS or hormonal variations are affecting women's behavior, we're going to cause women trouble if they try to achieve. But does it exist? Yes. Um, do we know everything we want to know about it? No. There, it, it does appear to be related to progesterone levels. So progesterone levels go up fairly precipitously after the timing after the time of ovulation within the cycle. And in all of these cases, I'm talking about normally cycling women, not women who are on the pill. And so progesterone goes up, but then it, it dips down um, fairly rapidly prior to menstrual onset. And so there's some thinking that maybe it's um, progesterone withdrawal that women are experiencing when they, when they go through these symptoms. Then another question that is quite fascinating is, um, well, are should we think about this as just being an epiphenomenon? So it's not a biological adaptation or something that we can make biological sense of. Alternatively, um, might some of the behaviors that women are engaging in tell us something about their mating strategy? Um, So if a woman is having regular sex with her partner and she doesn't become pregnant, you know, what kind of information is that going to send to our, you know, mating adaptations that presumably would help to guide us toward fertile partners with whom we would, would have offspring, or at least in ancestral conditions would have done that. So could it be that, you know, this is setting off some sort of a little alarm in uh, people's heads, women's heads, that if they are having sex and here comes their menstrual onset again, menstrual period again, that maybe this is not um, the right partner, at least with respect to those reproductive um, outcomes? Again, so we're we're uh, treading on on what will be considered stereotypes, but my interpretation of what you just said is that there's some evolutionary logic by which a woman could be made disagreeable with respect to her mate if she's not gotten pregnant by him in any 
short time frame. Right. Well, you know, and I think that if that were the explanation, that we'd see a lot more breakups than we actually do. Um, people stay with their partners for a long time, even if those relationships are not producing offspring. I think that's actually one of the great evolutionary mysteries for people who are interested in our mating psychology to try to address. But what I am saying is that there is this hypothesis that, that is out there um, that, you know, to dump the infertile boyfriends hypothesis. Um, I should say that that hypothesis should be attributed to Lita Cosmides. Um, she has was speculating about this decades before, um, and uh, I just thought it was such a fascinating idea for what otherwise appears to be pretty puzzling phenomenon or set of uh, phenomena, those occurring with PMS. So you mentioned the pill here. So how does the pill interact with our thinking about human sexuality and, and the psychology of women? I mean, this is, this is a major mm -hmm. lever that has been pulled in, mm -hmm. in human relationships. Right. So most of our studies include only women not using the pill so that we are able to capture um, normal variations in their hormones that presumably underlie some of the uh, phenomena of interest, their mating psychology and so forth. But there are, there's a separate issue altogether. And so that's just the issue of, you know, who, who do we have participate in our studies versus who do we need to set aside because their hormone cycles are going to be different in some way. But then there's this other question of, well, are there detrimental effects of using hormonal contraception? And if so, what are they? And people got very excited about this idea, I suppose would be one way of putting it, um, without there really being much evidence in favor of the hypothesis. So the idea um, was that um, some of the scent mechanisms that, that help us potentially help us sniff out the right kind of mate, a, a mate with whom we will be fertile. Um, I'm skipping over a lot of the details here, but um, that those preferences or those women's preference for those uh, odors, odor signatures was gone or potentially reversed if women were using hormonal contraception. So people got, you know, very concerned about this. There was a blog post that, um, nearly made one of my female graduate students tear out all of her hair called How the Pill Can Ruin Your Life. Um, so it's just a bit of a premature conclusion that, you know, the pill, which has done so much for women and their professional success and just controlling the reproductive de destinies, that this flimsy evidence would be regarded as suggesting that women should go off the pill, for example. So we've done some studies subsequent to that. And what we find is very measured evidence um, some evidence that women prefer the body odors of men with dissimilar immune system regulating genes, MHC genes. But it really looks like it's not quite as much of a general phenomenon as was reported before. So we find it more in some ethnic groups than in others. Um, another implication of this hypothesis about women's choices being affected by their hormonal birth control status is um, that women who start dating their partners when they are on the pill and then subsequently go off of the pill, that they should somehow be more, they should somehow feel less attracted to their partners. And in fact, that is not what we found. If anything, it, it, the effect went a little bit in the reverse, such that women who started dating their partners when they were on the pill um, had more um, MHC gene dissimilar partners. So that's a, that's a story that's... Um, unfolding and will continue to unfold. I think there are super fascinating questions there. Different pill formulations have different effects on women, and that's going to factor in here too. 
Uh, so there was a study that was uh, published uh, just recently, a Norwegian study, looked at the types of pill formulations that women were using and various aspects of their sexuality. And what the study showed was that pill formulations that were a little bit more estrus-like in the sense that they had higher um, levels of estrogen, um, synthetic estrogens, compared to progestins, that those women seem to be more attracted to um, partners, and in particular their own partners, if their partners were the more sexually attractive type. Um, whereas other pill formulations that are higher in progesterone relative to estrogen, and so that is the hormone profile that um, is associated with the latter half of the cycle in which this phenomenon of extended sexuality occurs, that those women are really sort of, they're seeking sex with their partners. If their partners are the sort of good investing type, and in particular, if they're interested in having their partners invest more in them in their relationships, so there might be some alarm bells that are ringing a little bit with respect to those relationships. The implication is that you could imagine if these findings turn out to be robust and replicate, you could imagine a conversation that a woman would have with her doctor about the different pill formulations and whether they are more estrogen-like or estrus-mimicking or more extended sexuality-mimicking, um, or whether she might prefer to go with a non-hormonal contraceptive option altogether. But without the information about the different pill formulations, and we're in our infancy of understanding that, women are not going to be able to have that educated conversation with their doctors. Yeah, but you can imagine what a crazy conversation it would be. So, I yeah. mean, so what would be the logic? Just take the the married case. So, like, the pill formulation that would make fidelity within that relationship less likely. I think that the first question you have to ask yourself is, what is a woman trying to achieve in her life? So, is she trying to achieve having a harmonious uh, relationship with her spouse um, and creating um, the kind of environment in which they can raise children together um, in a harmonious way, then that might dictate one set of um, choices. So looking at the, at the more extended, extended sexuality types of pills, whereas a woman who's really just not wanting to miss out on these estrus phenomena, the estrus um, where se sexuality gets turned on and it's very... Um, is more concerned with um, exciting sexuality and exciting sex life um, than alternatives, that she might make a different decision. So I say we've, the first question is, um, what is her motivation? And then I wouldn't presume that, um, you know, there would be a one-size-fits-all solution. That's one of the things that uh, has caused some concern when I teach about this material, when I write about it, when I give um, lectures about it, is, you know, are women missing out on... So there's on another... Um, increase on high fertility days of the cycle in how attractive women are found to be by others. Right. Um, and so women might want that little boost on high fertility days of the cycle. Or maybe they don't. Maybe they just want to go about their business and, um, you know, keep trudging on. Well, this is a, a fascinating area of, of exploration, and it's just it's great to uh, get this tour. I, I realize we went through it at quite a, a clip, but uh, there is much more information in your book, which is doubly fascinating. Thank you. Where can people find out what you're doing online? Is there is there a social media handle you want to put out there? or? Oh, yes. Um, at Hazelton. H-A-S-E-L-T-O-N. On Twitter. So people can find me there. I, you know, the book is available. My understanding is it's still fairly widely available. Um, and so I hope people might be interested in checking that out. 
um, and and sending me feedback too. It's just so nice to get um, you know to hear from people that they've read the book and that they've appreciated it, or sometimes that they've found uh, points to quibble with. I'm, I'm equally as interested in hearing those things. Where do you mostly hear that on Twitter or by email? Um, I get emails. Um, I hear it on Twitter. Sometimes it'll be at conferences. People will pull me aside. But it's just really nice. And, and a lot of times it's people who I, I just had no idea that they were out there. And, and that's I suppose that's mostly um, Twitter. But there are comments on the news articles that have been written about the book as well, where I'm seeing some of the responses. Great. Well, really, it's been a lot of fun, Marty, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Yes, thank you. Really appreciate it. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly, and you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.